0: Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We're focusing again today on the man known as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist, called by God for a specific purpose. Uh, it was a unique call unlike any other call that would follow or preceded that. He is the prophet of the Messiah. And as God called him and empowered him, he prepared the way for the coming of Christ. And so we're going to look at His message today. And I want us to focus on the question, are you a repenter? And we'll talk more specifically about that. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, "Repent." For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your guidance, uh, even in the midst of confusion and change. And Father, we pray that today you would quieten our hearts. You would find our hearts to be fertile soil for the seed of your word, that it might penetrate our hearts and produce a harvest of good works and godliness that would bring you great glory. And so, Father, I pray that you would please speak through me, because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What happened behind the scenes? As you know, things are not going as we plan A or Plan B. Now we're on Plan C, and that's okay. C stands for Christ, and we're following, uh, following Him today. But it all happened because of the wrong person trying to do a task he didn't understand how to do. I'm talking about myself. I did something I thought was very simple. I went down the stairs. There was one water faucet handle. I turned that faucet handle, thinking that would increase the water flow in the baptistry. What I did is I opened the drain because there's this other thing that doesn't look like it has anything to do with water that allows the water to come into the baptistry. So not only did I not fill the baptistry, I filled a couple of rooms behind the baptistry back there. And so it is refilling. We will baptize at the end. However, I see a good picture in that. That here is John the Baptist doing something that he was not accustomed to doing, but he was called by God to do it. And he was the the right man for the right message at the right moment. And under that calling, he brings that message in a timely way to where it doesn't matter where he's located when he does it. He's out in the wilderness in Judea. It doesn't matter if he is not the chosen one of the people to deliver that message, but God had called him to do it. And he was the right man. Doing the right thing in the right way as God determined for him to do it. And so we read his message a moment ago Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now try to put your feet in his sandals. If you were called by God to be the very first person to introduce Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King to the world, what would be your first sentence? I don't know if you've had that responsibility before where there's a guest speaker and you're called upon to introduce this person. That's a pretty burdensome task to think through and uh, be prepared. Uh, You want to make the right introduction. Can you imagine the heavy weight upon his shoulders that he will be the first to introduce him and to introduce how to come to him? So better yet, not what would your first sentence be, but what would your first word be? In the current church culture, the message might be come and get rich. Or come and feel better. Or come and have all your needs met. But the first word in John's message is repent. It was not a a gentle message, it was a harsh message. It was a message that challenged the religious establishment to the very core of their beings. Who would he be to call upon them to do anything other than what they had always done? But the first message is, repent. I remember years and years ago, I met my first Russian pastor. I was speaking to him, and he was telling me about what God was doing in their midst. And he used terms that seem strange to me, but terms that are very biblical after you consider them. First of all, he was talking about how they had built a prayer house here, and a prayer house here, and a prayer house here, and extended their ministry. Now, in my way of thinking, I was thinking, are you talking about a prayer chapel? He was talking about churches. They refer to their churches as prayer houses. Why? Because Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Then he talked about preaching and and how fulfilling it had been because he told me about a service where a man repented. And I thought, from what? What? Was he a church member with hidden sin and he repented? You know what he was saying? The man became a believer. He repented. He was a repenter. That's how they refer to a follower of Christ. So think about the terminology we use. We kind of had to move away from the word Christian because that became such a generic term with people and uh, we've even heard people in our community say, well, everybody in Crockett is Christian. Well, that's not true. It's very possible not everybody in this room is a Christian. We, only God knows. But narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be who find it. So many people would wear that label Christian because they would say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a Texan and an American. Isn't it all the same? So we shifted to, are you a believer? Well, even that can be deceptive because some would think you're simply asking them, do you believe in God in a generic sense? They might say, yes, I'm a believer. In that, they might mean, I I call upon God when I'm in trouble or when I'm distressed, I pray for rain but there's no personal commitment to Christ. So then we might use the term, are you a follower of Christ? Well, even that can be misconstrued in people's minds with little explanation because they might think, yeah, I'm a a good old boy like the Rich young ruler, I I do this and I don't do that. I have a legalistic thing, list of things. and, And they might go on to say, I hope that my good outweighs my bad because I really am a good old boy. Just ask my mom. Well, God's not gonna ask his mom. But think about that term, repenter. That gets at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ, a Christian or a believer, because without repentance, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And without a heart of repentance continuously as a lifestyle, you can't reflect who Christ is to those around you. So repentance is that initial step of turning from sin and turning to Christ. And then it is a lifestyle for the believer until they reach heaven. That constant challenge when I give in to sin and self and I give in to the temptations of Satan, I have to repent again, not to be saved, but to restore my fellowship with the Father who has established that relationship with me. And so I I want us to think of it in those terms today. Are you a repenter? Not just have you repented, but the reality would be in the present tense. Have, Have you repented initially to come to Christ? And are you currently repenting of sin in your life? Are you a repenter at the very core of your identity? So I want us to look at three things based upon the statement John the Baptist makes here that identify for us what the life of a repenter looks like. First of all, a repenter lives a life of honesty. Now, I'm not just talking about telling the truth even when it's tough. I'm talking about being honest about yourself. Notice the message here. His first word, repent. Now I read it rather calmly. John was in the wilderness preaching to crowds that were gathering. It might've sounded more like this, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was calling to them and challenging them and pleading with them to turn from that which was destroying them to the one who could give them life. So to repent is to be honest about your sin and your guilt in your life. It's me saying I am a sinner and you are holy. I am guilty and you are guiltless. I am impure and you are pure. And I have sinned against you in a grievous way. And I have brought shame to you as one created in your image and I turn from that as one who repents and I come to you. You see, it's not just understanding the truth about God that makes you a repenter. It's understanding the truth about yourself. A true repenter is honest concerning personal sin and personal guilt. So here's what it looks like. We've used a simple analogy of a U-turn, but that's very important. It means I am moving away from God. I am living in rebellion to him. And in response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life, I turn. That's just part of it. I turn. Turn from my sin I turn toward the Savior and I return to him it's not just a mental change of mind oh yes this is bad that's good that word repentance means a change of mind that produces a change of action it's the Greek word metanoiae Metanoyo, which means an afterthought or a second thought. Now just think about that. As an, a non-repenter, you think, this is good. This is appealing. This is fulfilling. This sin makes me feel good. But then on second thought, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you say, that's bad, that's destructive, that's evil, that's ungodly and you turn and you return to him and say, that is good, he is good, he is perfect, he is pure and I bring my life to him to deliver me from that. You see how, how big that picture is of repentance? It's not just saying, I don't believe God, now I do believe in God, it's nothing that shallow, it is a life-transforming Step and it's only done by the power of God. And so I make that decision to repent. God guides me to that by the Holy Spirit, and I turn and I return to Him. Here's what one commentator says John did not call on the people to be sorry, but to change to think afterwards, literally, to change their attitudes mentally and their conduct personally, a change of mind which issues in regret and in a change of conduct. This is not an imposed speech put in your hands as a professional athlete And we could all recite it together. What I did was wrong. I'm sorry that I have cast a bad reflection upon myself, my family, and this team. I will try to do better as I proceed through my professional career and continue to bless you with my athletic prowess. It's not a a president in the past who says... What do you mean by that? Uh, be specific about that. He, he, he said, and then he, he said, I'm, I'm sorry. But you see there's a, a sorrow that people can have and still die and spend eternity in hell. The Bible distinguishes between a, a sorrow because you get caught or a sorrow because Now people know who you really are, that kind of thing. But there's a a genuine sorrow that brings a brokenness in our life that we have sinned against a holy God. This implies a conscious, moral separation from our sin and a personal decision to forsake it and to enter into fellowship with God. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That doesn't say we because we're sinners, we're not like God. Because we're sinners, we have fallen short of what God created us to be, the glory that he placed upon us. Now, I could ask you a trick question. Are you a sinner because you sin? Or do you sin because you're a sinner? Let's all pick choice B. We sin because we are a sinner by nature and by choice. It's not just about the habits that we have, it's about our heart. And we have a heart that moves in the realm of sin and rebellion against God. And the only antidote to that virus of sin and rebellion is repentance and salvation. That's the only thing that can change a person's heart. And that's the only thing that can keep a person's heart pure before God. So keep that in mind. We're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. And so in Acts 3.19, we find these words. Peter is preaching his second sermon. At the heart of it, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So what's he saying there? He's saying, when I come to a point of the recognition that I am a sinner who commits sins, but at my very heart, I'm living in rebellion to God, I must repent and be converted. To be converted is to have that afterthought that says, I turn from this, now I turn to him and I come to Christ. And he says, when that transpires in our life, our sins are blotted out. They are cleansed. So let's look at the difference in the two types of repentance described in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7. Now he's speaking about a specific thing that transpired in a specific community, in a specific congregation, but the principle applies here. He's speaking to them having made the right decision which shows that their salvation is genuine because they are repenters. So notice what it says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 7. The apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of God, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation and not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Do you see the difference there? There is a, a, a sorrow where you, you're, you're sorry for your sin. I apologize. Has anyone ever said to you, stop apologizing and just stop doing it? Well, that's a repentance that's just wrapped up in I'm sorry. I'll confess one of my sins. When I was younger, my sister and I would get on each other's side of the back seat. You know, he's on my side of the seat. She's on my side. And, or we'd be arguing about something. My dad would come in and he'd say, Son, you tell your sister you're sorry. And I'd go, you're sorry. And um, I enjoyed it for a moment. Did you understand what I did? He said, tell your sister you're sorry. And I told her, you're sorry. you know, we do that in life, don't we? Instead of saying, I'm sorry and, and repenting and owning up to our own sin and allowing God to transform us, we, we point to people around us, we point to our past, we point to everything else and, and we say, you're sorry. And that's why, why I'm waiting in all of this and drowning in all of this. The reality is I'm sorry as an individual. I, I'm sorry for what I've done, not just in a physical sorrow, but a sorrow that leads to repentance. Even if it's a sin that, we're not aware how grievous it is to God, but we come to that understanding. We turn and we say, oh God, I'm, I'm sorry that I've sinned like that. I'm, I'm sorry that I have worshiped that instead of you and I repent of that and I ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me. I, I want to walk in fellowship with you and I know Jesus is my only hope and I, I stand in awe of the blood that he shed in light of how sinful and Wicked and evil my heart is and I plead with you for your forgiveness. It's that, that transforming moment when you have that afterthought about the whole realm of sin that you've committed because you are a sinner and you see that the sin can't be separated from the sinner in the eyes of God apart from the death of Christ on the cross for us. So a repenter lives a life of honesty. That means that because of the grace and mercy of God, I don't have anything to hide from him because I can't hide anything from him. He knows my heart. And I constantly come and I live a lifestyle of a repenter after I've made that commitment to Christ. Christ. Secondly, a repenter lives a life of humility. He says, repent in Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now think about the kingdom of heaven. The gospel according to Matthew contains that phrase 32 times. 32 times that phrase is used, the kingdom of heaven. It's equivalent to other places in the scripture where it talks about the kingdom of God. Those would be equal because God reigns in the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven is referred to 32 times in the gospel according to Matthew and is mentioned nowhere else in the New Testament. Here's a man that lived torn between two kingdoms. Prior to coming to Christ, he was torn between the kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of the Jewish people. He was a tax collector. That meant that he daily came in contact with people who were spiritually unclean he was employed by an unclean, ungodly government in the eyes of the Jewish people, rightly so. Caesar viewed himself as a human expression of deity. It would go so far at some point in history that people would have to make that confession that Caesar is God. And that's the one whom he worked for. He made his living by extracting money from people in taxes to Caesar. And in some ways, it was a corrupt system by which he made his living. But on the other hand, he was a Jewish man. He was a man born a Jew. He was a part of the nation of Israel. He was part of that exiled oppressed group of people that had been exiled and brought back to the land and there they were oppressed by one nation after another but now under the Roman rule so that he was viewed by the Jewish people as a traitor so he's writing the gospel from his perspective under the inspiration of God and 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 he has turned from this kingdom not just to the kingdom of the Jewish people, but here's the move he's made. He's turned from the kingdom of Caesar to the kingdom of the savior. He's turned from the kingdom of Rome to the kingdom of the redeemer. He, he, he knew what that, that was. And so he, he has this image in his mind, this is the kingdom of heaven. Not, are you a citizen of the Roman government? Are you a a Jewish person by heritage, but the kingdom of heaven? And so the kingdom of heaven is is contrast with the kingdom of darkness. This is the kingdom of light that Jesus brought. This is the kingdom of God, not the, kingdom of Satan, the prince of this world. And so here, John the Baptist delivers a very timely, powerful message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So how would you define the kingdom of heaven? Well, another way to say it, the rule of heaven has arrived and is arriving in the person Of Jesus Christ. It's at hand. It's near. It's impinging upon our current existence. The the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent is to bow before the king of the kingdom of heaven. It's to turn from everything this world offers, everything the prince of darkness would offer us to turn to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and to allow the king of the kingdom of heaven to reign and rule on the throne of your heart, so to speak. So anything that competes with Jesus for the throne of your heart is an idol. Because he alone has right to rule in your life. Because he is the king of the kingdom of heaven. So a moment ago when we worshiped him, here's what we were doing. We were bowing our hearts before his kingship. When we were uh, almost raptured in singing about his resurrection, we were recognizing and celebrating his kingship. He is the the king over all. He has conquered death, hell, and the grave. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And we celebrate that because he is the king of the kingdom of heaven that transcends and supersedes the any kingdom in this earth. So many had misconstrued who the Messiah would be. They had come to think of the Messiah As the one who would deliver them from Caesar. And they were looking for a military leader who would deliver them from Rome and from Caesar. But the true Messiah came to deliver us from ruin and to give us salvation that was much bigger eternal deliverance. So it's no coincidence in Matthew chapter one, verse 21, we find these words. And she, your betrothed wife will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Their greatest need was not to be delivered from Caesar but to be delivered from their sin and to be given salvation. Our greatest threat is a nation. It's not from any other kingdom on this earth, but the kingdom of darkness ruling and reigning in the hearts of people within our nation. And Christians not dealing with sin in their lives and not repenting of that and getting right with God. Our greatest threat is us. And our self and our sin, which Satan stirs up. In John one twenty nine, he turns and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist said that. He was introducing Jesus. And so a, a repenter lives a life of humility because he is not the king of his own destiny. Only Jesus holds that in his hand. He is sovereign. He has put everything in place to determine when your last breath is taken, depending upon whether or not you belong to Christ and you are one of his, your destiny will be sealed after that final breath. And he expresses his sovereignty by where you go to spend eternity. You will either spend eternity in the kingdom of heaven with him or you will spend eternity in the kingdom of hell, a place of torment where you're always dying but never die, always suffering but never freed from it, based on whether you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And he doesn't allow dual citizenship. You're either in or you're out. You're either in the kingdom of heaven or you're in the kingdom of hell. You can't straddle the fence. And once you have come into the kingdom of heaven, you are sealed by the person of the Holy Spirit. If you have truly repented and have a new... Vision of who you are and what sin can do in your relationship to God and in your own personal life and taint His glory that He has placed upon you, and you move toward Him, you are sealed in your citizenship of heaven if you are truly a repenter. And it all begins with humility, me saying, I'm not the king, but you are. I'm not even a little king with a lowercase k, I am nothing without you as my king. So you see how poignant this message was. Repent in honesty about who you are. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about humility coming in that kingdom. And then thirdly, a repenter lives a life of urgency. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at Hand. There's an urgency there. This past week, I flew to New Mexico. My wife had a um, had to stay here and teach piano. My my mom was facing some medical decisions about her future. We we're meeting with the cardiologist, and uh, we got some. Favorable news. But on the way there, I was flying directly from Dallas to Clovis, New Mexico. On an airline that has a direct flight, no stops. And it holds eight people. Besides the the pilot and the co-pilot. It was kind of unnerving. We were taxing over in the corporate aviation part of the airport where they leave from and, and we're, we're taxiing away. Well, I'm the only passenger on the plane. It was tough deciding where I was gonna sit. Well, we're, we're taxiing and if you've been to the, uh, to DFW airport, you, you drive under, airplanes going over. Well, we went over that, that bridge so like a little kid. I was like, this is so cool, I get to go over the bridge. But before we got to the bridge, we taxi for a long way, and as I look between the pilot and co-pilot, I see black, billowing smoke coming off of what appeared to be the end of the runway. That's kind of unsettling when you're about to take off. And then we, we turned to go toward the bridge, and as we did, I saw a plane not resting on its wheels, but on the belly of the plane engulfed in flames, and and they're spraying to put the, the fire out. I don't know if the pilot and the co-pilot saw me looking with shock because you realize I'm going to arrive at a terminal. Terminal is not a good word in some senses. And they kind of laugh and shrug their shoulders looking at it. Closer I looked at it, it appeared to be a training place where they train people to put out those fires. So I made that assumption, learned later that was a correct assumption. So we fly for about an hour and a half. We arrive in Clovis, New Mexico. Right after we arrive and they turn off the engine, the co pilot turns to the pilot and says, You did good. And he said, one more minute and we wouldn't have made it. That's not what you want to hear. Because immediately I thought, there are going to be seven people giving the testimony. I was supposed to be on that flight if something had happened 60 seconds earlier than them turning that engine off. Well, then the co-pilot comes around and, and he walks down the ladder onto the tarmac And as he does, this lady rushes out to him and says, I'm glad you made it. And I'm coming down the steps thinking, I am too. And then he says, we had one minute to spare. And she said, I know. And he says, so go ahead and get the maintenance guys to come look at the plane. Well, now I'm not even trusting the ladder getting out of this thing. Then I walk into the airport, which is a small building. I hug my sister, hello, and I turn to go to the restroom, and I overhear a lady say to the co-pilot, do you think it's safe to go ahead and put luggage on that plane? It's the only plane on the tarmac. Well, now I'm really curious. So I walk into the restroom, and as I'm, I'm turning to leave, the co-pilot comes in. I'm not leaving before I ask this question. Was there something wrong with the airplane? And he looked at me like I would lost my mind. Kind of. He just kind of looked at me with a blank stare and he said, oh, no. We have so many flight miles we can travel before we have to do severe uh, inspection and maintenance on a plane like that. And we arrived one minute inside that to where they do a more limited inspection and maintenance on the plane. That's all it was. Well, I about passed out at that. But here's what happened to me. Right there in the threshold of that restroom, I moved from feeling a sense of urgency that demanded a change of my flight reservations coming back. I, I faced an urgency of knowing in my mind that I was one minute from standing before God. I moved from that to, oh good, it wasn't anything. Have you ever done that spiritually? Do you remember before you came to Christ, you were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit? You felt like if you did not give your life to Christ right now, you would not live another day? your life would be in the shambles and you would have no hope in this life. And then you walked away saying, whew, everything's okay. Well, the reality is when John preached this message, he was saying, you don't have any time left. The kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is coming and, and don't delay, don't wait, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, death and eternity are no respecter of age, are they? The person we think will die first sometimes dies last in a home. We, we have no guarantee. Right now, I'm, I'm about three years older, This year I'll be three years older than my father was when he died. I I live with a sense of urgency in my life because I don't know how much longer I have, but I want to live it to the fullest for Christ. And if you're in this room right now, you might think, well, I've got plenty of time. I'm, I'm young or I'm in good health. Doctor says I'm good to go. How many people have died in the exam room right after the doctor told them they were in perfect health? That's happened before. We don't know, I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. He has come and he is coming. And just as certain as looking back in history at his first coming, you can rest assured looking into the future that his second coming is certain. And so we live between his first and second coming. And many have said, well, These last days sure are lasting a long time. It doesn't matter. We're a day further into it than we have ever been. And I don't want to risk my eternal well-being on a hope and a whim. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What would it be? be like if you were not prepared when Christ came this should motivate us to live with a sense of urgency and a burning desire to take everyone we can with us to heaven to talk to them about the one who has come there's a fictitious story about the devil and his demons meeting they were having a a strategy brainstorm. How can we take the most people to hell? How can we bring that many people to destruction the most people we can? Fictitiously, this one demon said, hey, um, Satan, why don't we tell them there's no heaven? If they believe there's no heaven, there's no afterlife, then they'll be hopeless and, He said, no, that won't work. Every every culture believes in some type of afterlife. Not every culture, but most. Another demon thought he would top that suggestion. He said, well, let's not tell them there's no heaven. Let's tell them there's no hell. And Satan said, that won't work because they experience enough pain and evil and sorrow in this life to know that It could even be worse in the afterlife. Then in this fictitious story, Satan's eyes widen and he says, I know what we can tell them. We won't tell them there's no heaven or there's no hell. We'll tell them there's no hurry. And that'll bring the most people with us to hell. There's no hurry. And so many would say, well, yes, I know I need to come to Christ, but I, I need to get my life straightened out first. No, you don't. That's the whole reason he came. He came because we could not straighten our lives out. We are crooked and, and mixed up and broken and sinful. Others would say, well, well I want to... Have more understanding. I want to be able to put all this together in my mind, and, and you can never get there because no matter how much we know, I can attest to the fact I have a Bible degree from college, I have a master's degree from seminary, I have my doctorate in biblical spirituality, and all I've learned through all that is how little I actually know about God because He's beyond our understanding. He's beyond our grasp unless he makes himself near to us as he did in Christ. And and you'll never amass enough knowledge. Others would say, well, I want to compare all of the religions. Well, there's no comparison. People say all religions take us to the same place. That's true because Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship that takes you to Christ and to heaven. And all other religions do take you to the same place. They take you straight to hell. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The Bible says, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. Those are exclusive claims. And it's not a religion and a ritual. It's a relationship with the God of the universe. But all of that and any other means of causing you to delay in coming to Christ is a, a tool And a strategy of the enemy, whispering in your ear. There's no hurry. There's no hurry. You got plenty of time. You just go ahead and go ahead and explore. Go ahead and think. Go ahead and um, come to church. He doesn't care if we come to church as long as we don't come to Christ. There's a big difference coming to church and coming to Christ. John wasn't just introducing a new religion. He wasn't just trying to do an upgrade of Judaism. He was bringing a fresh message that the king of the kingdom has arrived and you will have to do business with him. You cannot remain neutral toward Jesus. It's either yes or no. It's either come to him or walk away from him. It's either repent or rebel. No one stays neutral with Jesus. And he doesn't care what we say about Jesus as long as we don't say the right thing. And that is, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior and I bow at your feet. So now I say as John the Baptist did, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Are you a repenter? And are you calling others to repent? And so as repenters, we do something that's strange in the eyes of the world. We partake of communion. We come to a table with simple objects on it. Little cups with juice, little fragments of bread or wafer. And somehow as we partake of this, we see Christ in this symbolically, not literally, but symbolically. Yes, he gave us these images to picture his broken body and his shed blood. Does eating and drinking of this save you? No, well then why? Because we have bowed before him. It's a weekly reminder that we needed what he did for us Or we were destined for hell apart from his death for us and his resurrection. We celebrate that every week. Because without that, we would have no reason to worship, would we? We'd have no reason to gather, so we come to celebrate that. And we give. Silly in the eyes of the world. Why would you commit to give 10% of everything that you Earn what? Well, because it all belongs to God. No, they would say it doesn't. You, you got the job. You go to work. You expend yourself. You put up with stressful situations. You earn that. No, the reality is God gave us all of that for our well-being. And so, out of obedience, we give a percentage of our income, what God has blessed us with, as a reminder that He is our source. So that's why these. Um, Vessels are here to place our offering there. So we come here basically to celebrate what we have been given by God. We have been given life. We deserve death. We've been given forgiveness. We deserve his curse upon us. We have been given heaven. We deserved hell. We celebrate that. And it humbles us every week before our king. And, and then we, we don't come to, to get, we don't give so we can get back. We, we give because he's already outgiven our expectations. He's blessed us so richly. And even in financial ways, he's blessed us, which is very minor compared to the real rich blessings he blesses us with. And we give. And when he blesses us abundantly beyond Our regular income, we we give a part of that to celebrate that because we are here to worship the king and to recognize we are not kings. We're not queens of our universe. He is the king. And only repenters come to the table because unless you have repented and are repenting as a lifestyle, it means nothing. Nothing. But if you have repented and are repenting and living that lifestyle, it means everything. So I'm going to lead us in prayer and then we will gather at the table. We'll come and return to our seats or pray here. Spend time reflecting on what God has done in our life, what he is doing, what he's going to do through the person of Christ. We'll have a reflection question on the screen, Lord. What in my life displeases you? Why do we put that on there? To make you feel guilty? No, to call us to check our hearts. Is there anything we haven't repented of? Not to earn our salvation if we've already repented and turned to Christ the Savior, but we continue to repent as a lifestyle. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrocket.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.